save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the last several episodes now, we've been covering both the international laws about wildlife trade and national issues about our own iconic wildlife and endangered species, discussing the biology, habitat, and ecological needs, and necessary legislation for our magnificent carnivores. However, none of that will happen unless we first connect with nature and our wild lands, its myriad forms most beautiful, and understand their roles in the dance of life. Today, we with my guest and author and wildlife advocate, Rick Lamplew, we're going to walk down the path of how deeply important the immersive aspect is to protecting our wildlands and our perceptions of it, our human need in knowing there are wild places and wild animals who thrive there, how we evolved with it, that wildness fills an essential part of our spirit, our soul, and our ancient psyche needs it. Author of three award-winning books, In the Temple of Wolves, Deep into Yellowstone, and The Wilds of Aging, Rick takes us on a journey of what it means to step away from our comfortable lives, how important adventure and advocacy for wildness is for our humanity, and that in settling to the pace and nuances of living in the wild can bring us in sync to our inner nature and the resonance of the natural world around us. Welcome, Rick. Oh, thanks, Ellie. It's really nice to be here, and I just want to tell you right up front, I sure appreciate your programs. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, it was an interesting way about how I found you, digging into um, finding folks that are involved with wolves, and uh, I found your blog and your Facebook page, and um, and I'd like you to tell us what that is at one point in the to- show. I don't have it in front of me right now. But I was drawn to you somehow because of your writings and um, how you you decided to pick up stakes and move your life into following your dream. So how about we begin with some of that journey, how you started writing, your beliefs about writing, and your progression as to how it led you along this journey to becoming one of Yellowstone's wolf and wildlife advocates. Sure. Well, um, I wrote my first book in the late 80s. Uh, That book and the next were about my career field and, and weren't nature writing at all. Um, Those two books led to my producing and hosting a a local public radio series, and that involved writing to deadline on a weekly basis, which was sure good training. And in 2014, I published my first book about Yellowstone in the Temple of Wolves, you mentioned it. And then in 2017, I published the sequel, Deep into Yellowstone. And finally, uh, just last year, I published The Wilds of Aging, which, as it turns out, is the prequel to In the Temple of Wolves. Um, so that's kind of the story of my, the progression of my writing. Now, one of my key beliefs about writing is that, um, well, I write as if nobody's ever going to read it. And uh, because that's true, really, millions of people will never read what I write. Um, but 
the good part of this is that what I write is if nobody's going to read it, I can be truly honest. I'm not writing for an editor. I'm not writing for any particular group. I'm not wondering, oh, how are my friends in Yellowstone going to feel about this? But instead, I'm just simply writing to be honest. Honest description of what I see and honest description of my feelings about what I see. And and I think that's what made In the Temple of Wolves and Deep into Yellowstone um, Amazon bestsellers because readers sensed that honesty. I like that. I like that a lot. So I've read In the Wilds of Aging, and it mm-hmm. resonated very deeply with me, and um, I definitely suggest our listeners to pick up the three books. Um, they're beautiful. I've started In the Temple of Wolves, and it's beautiful. So um, you're not necessarily a scientist or a historian, and mm-hmm. your relationships with the wild built or formed with you in in a I'm going to call it a unique journey. Tell us how you got there. Yeah, so you're exactly right. And I, I really, uh, whenever I go <clears throat> speak, uh, public speaking, one of the first things I tell people is I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm a writer. I do write nonfiction. And so um, I have a deep respect for science. And I want to make sure that I get the science right in anything that I write. And that was one of the reasons that both of my books about Yellowstone were approved by the National Park Service to be sold within the park. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but oh. every every book that is sold in the park uh, has to be approved by the Park Service. And uh, so I got the science right, and that really made me feel good. But getting the science right is only one part of my writing. And what I want to do is make the science understandable to the average person. And here's how I try to do that. You know, first I want to bring the reader into the book. So if I'm out cross-country skiing, I want the reader to feel the sweat and the minus 10 degree temperature. And I want the reader to hear the song of a coyote family just over the next rise. And, and when we meet a big male bison on the trail, I want the reader to see the cloud of breath that billows from that bison's nose. So you know, once the reader is right there with me, Then I can start to bring in the science and the history, and I can start telling the reader about how that bison, as a species, you know, they evolved over two million years, and how they originated in southern Asia and migrated north, and they crossed the Bering Land Bridge and then turned south, and and now, after that incredible journey of eons and miles, they are trapped in Yellowstone. So, I really, that theme goes through all my writing is I want the reader right there with me and then I can start explaining things. I love that. I, love- I absolutely love that. Um, so um, you've talked a lot in, in the books. You've, you bring in the science and you bring in the history in this livable way that the reader is there present with you on this this journey, this walk, this path you're taking. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of what you're trying to, or what, you, I'm not going to say trying, what you accomplish in the books is understanding a relationship to mm-hmm. these various species and the land. And that that's also an integral part of what you attain through writing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you know, and I think um, the first winter that uh, my wife Mary and I spent at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, right in the heart of Yellowstone, what's really Yellowstone Wolf Central, um, I think that winter really gets to that point you're making right there. Um, once Mary and I retired, you know, we had the opportunity to live and work right in the Lamar Valley for three months, January, February, and March. Now, I didn't volunteer to go there to be near wolves or to even write about them. Um, frankly, at the time, I knew very little about wolves. And what I knew was certainly the product of myths and fantasies. But I am a curious guy <laughs> with an open mind. And that first winter was just beautiful, Ellie. Um, it was filled with wolf sightings. We were so lucky. Uh, we saw. Go Let, ahead. Let's back up one second. You were living in Corvallis, Oregon, and right. you'd been living there for three decades or so. Right. And um, and your previous work uh, was um, you were uh, an occupational therapist for um, folks that got injured on the job. Correct. And oh, helping well, them ref- a vocational rehabilitation. For Thank you, yeah. and yeah. helping people refine their lives. So that yeah. those journeys with your patients, your clients, your your friends, must have had a, a deep connection with you. For you to like pack up and decide to take this volunteership in Yellowstone. How did that come about? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. Well. Um, Mary and I had backpacked in Yellowstone for a number of years. We knew we loved the place. There was no question about that. Um, We also both could see that, you know, our jobs were ending, retirement was near, and what are we going to do next? Uh, And it was uh, one of the things as as a vocational rehabilitation consultant, one of the things that I taught people how to do is a process called informational interviewing. Meaning, if you're interested in being a, um, uh, an administrative assistant, you go and talk to as many administrative assistants as you can, and you ask them what do they like about the job, what don't they like about the job, what skills do they use, and so on. So what Mary and I did was we went to Yellowstone uh, one summer, and we talked to every person who was volunteering or uh, being paid to work there that we could get into a conversation with. And we asked them about what they were doing and where they were doing it and how they liked it. And one of the people we spoke to uh, worked up at Mammoth. And uh, instead of uh, telling a lot about himself, he asked us, what do we like to do? And we said, well, we love to canoe and we love to bicycle and we love to backpack. And he said, oh, well, then you got to go out to the Lamar Buffalo Ranch. And we said, the what? <laughs> uh, we didn't even know what it was. But we went out there immediately. I mean, we left talking with this gentleman, and we drove to the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, went past the sign that says no visitor services, parked our car, got out, and lucky for us, one of the volunteers there, it was a summer volunteer, uh, was taking the day off, and she came out to ask us, can I help you? And we said, well, we're thinking we might like to volunteer here. And she spent an hour with us showing us around the place, showing us what she did, showing us where she lived, showing us how she did things. And she ended that hour. She was standing on the steps of her cabin, and she was in tears when she was saying how she so loved being a steward of this place. 
That's, and, that's wonderful. Yeah, Mary and I left her and thanked her, of course, and left and went, just pulled off uh, half a mile down the road and said to each other, that's the place. That's where we got to go. And it took us three years um, to arrange that. You know, we had to find out who to volunteer with. Um, the person that we spent that hour talking with said, you know, if you're going to be here in the winter and you're from Oregon, you better uh, come here in the winter first to make sure you can handle the cold temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. Uh, so we did. We took classes at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, and we met the manager of the ranch, and she said to us, well, you know, since you're interested in volunteering, then why don't you make sure when you're taking a class that you spend time with the program assistant? That's the job that we would be doing, the person who drives the bus, the person who sets up the scopes, the person who cleans the cabins. Why don't you make sure to spend time with that program assistant and, um, uh, you know, get the real story about what goes on here? Of course, what we didn't know was that was the manager's way of uh, – us spending time with the program assistant so she could then go to the program assistant and say, what do you think? Can they handle this? Uh, and as, as it turned out, we could and did for three winters. So that's where that's- the, the uh, kind of rubber meets the road between a dream and reality. So listeners, I mean, this is all about finding your connection to nature and following that path. But it does take work. And yeah. we, we talk about this a lot. You know, there's the dream. And then there's, you know, the, the TV sort of fantasy version, all bullseye of how beautiful it is standing in the middle of all this. But beneath all that is the preparation and the work to know you can handle it. Because uh, Buffalo Ranch in the winter is not an easy place to be. Tell us a little bit about Buffalo Ranch, its importance in Yellowstone, to Yellowstone, and to you, and as we started, your advocacy and your relationship with wolves, and um, spending three months in the winter pretty much cut off from everyone else, deep in the woods of Yellowstone. Yeah, the nearest neighbor was 11 miles away when... Um, you know, groups would come. So there were six of us who lived at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch all winter. Uh, three volunteers and the manager and a district ranger um, and sometimes another volunteer. And uh, when there were no groups there, the groups would be anywhere from, say, 12 to 15 people, uh, we'd have the place to ourselves. And that's what I was saying earlier is we were so lucky because that winter in particular, that winter of uh, January, February, March of 2012, the Lamar Canyon Pack with that famous Wolf 06 um, or 832F was her official number. They they hung out right on the hill beside the ranch, the bunkhouse. So literally, we could walk out of our cabin and see wolves sunning themselves on this snow-covered hill. And it was watching those wolves, that pack in particular, the Lamar Canyon Pack, all winter that really helped me start seeing beyond the myth and beyond the fantasies that I came there with. And I started sensing and seeing the reality of a wolf's life. And what I learned there, Ellie, was that wolves are not here to attack us or to befriend us. You know, they, wolves hunt, they mate, they raise families, they protect territory. Everything else we put on them. 
Right. And they do all this in a really harsh environment with little room for error, even in a national park. So that first winter, I began to understand that wolves are essential now, not just in Yellowstone and not just in the Rocky Mountains. Wolves are essential wherever they're allowed to live. Well, they're, they're essential for the elk herds, and they're essential for the bison herds, and they're essential for um, the, the it's, it's, it's such an overused phrase, the ecosystem services they provide that we're not really aware of. And that's such a um, dry term to how we talk about wildlife, and it disengages us from the, the fabulousness of what you write about, that psychic mm-hmm. uh, psyche um, psy- physiological psychological connection of being in that space and spending time the way wildlife does not by the clock not by um, our tasks or our job or our employers it's by the seasons and by what's there as um, yeah. Mike Phillips says you know wolves live by their feet and you know there it's, it's surprisingly that um, an animal such as a wolf, that's actually rather um, precarious, uh, a precarious life. Their their feet are not hooves, you know, to, to live completely by where their feet can take them is, mm-hmm. is a chancy life. So mm-hmm. you, you spent your first winter at Buffalo Ranch, and I believe that outside that ranch is the pen where the original uh, release of wolves, the Canadian wolves were penned there uh, before their release. Is that correct? It is correct, yes. One of the pens. Okay. So you could go out and see that and that vibe of that wildness there. Oh, yeah. It was a, that was an amazing, uh, very, in, this whole part about learning about wolves. We would, um, we had the opportunity to take people, groups of people, up to the pen. We'd snowshoe up there. And, uh, Ellie, it was amazing to me. I mean, the pen itself now is just a 10-foot-high fence, uh, chain-link fence, that encloses about an acre's worth of ground. There's an old beat-up doghouse in there that the wolves could have used if they wanted. It's not much to it. But when people walked into that, some of them broke into tears. And the reverence that they ex- experienced and expressed when they walked in there was like somebody going into church. And for me, that was an amazing revelation of, my gosh, look how important these animals are. Some of these folks who were crying about going into the pen had never yet even seen a wolf. But it was somehow, it was incredibly important to them. And that was, that was really something for me that after I wrote in the Temple of Wolves and, and it became a, an Amazon bestseller, you know, I realized that I owed wolves a debt. If I was going to profit from a book about them, then I needed to pay them back. And one way I could do that was to speak for wolves and to advocate for them. And so I waited in, and I know we're going to talk about this a little later, but it was part of that sense of watching people's response to this pen that made me realize how important wolves are. Um, you, I've, as I said, I've started reading in the Temple of Wolves, but you mm-hmm. had mentioned that you'd like to read um, mm. a little excerpt 
from In the Temple of Wolves. And I would really like it if you'd do that. And then um, we'll probably head into a bit of a break. But this is a beautiful spot to bring our listeners in to being there. All right. So I'm going to read from uh, excerpts from Chapter 1. And that chapter is called Hunger and Delight. In the middle of the night, I slipped from the warm log cabin into the below zero temperature outside. I pulled the door closed, hoping not to wake my wife Mary. Still, the click of the latch resounds in the silence of the wild. I crunch onto the ice and snow-covered path, excited to be alone with the night. Frigid air freezes my nose hairs and burns my lungs. A full yellow-orange moon, dark craters obvious, turns scattered clouds tangerine. Though I wear a headlamp, I leave the light off. I don't want my vision trapped in a narrow, bouncing cone. Instead, my eyes adjust to reflected moonlight as I meander toward the bunkhouse, scanning for bison. A herd surrounded our cabin yesterday, swinging their massive heads side to side, bulldozing through snow, hungry for dried grasses that provide the nutrition of an empty cereal box. Mary and I, kneeling on our bed, watched and whispered and pointed, our smiling faces pressed against cold window panes. Over the crunch of my boots on snow, I hear howling, the sound that I longed for when I slid out of our warm bed. I stop, lean forward, and cup a hand behind one ear. My breath forms a gossamer curtain between me and the moon. Those wolves are here because of a wildly successful reintroduction involving the ranch, and their haunting calls drifting in the moonlight thrill me. The Lamar Valley offers some of the best wildlife watching in the world. Winter hungry elk and bison migrate here to graze through snow that is shallower than elsewhere in the park. Wolves, coyotes, and mountain lions stalk the grazers while eagles, ravens, and magpies wait to scavenge. The snowy backdrop makes this saga of death and life easy to spot. When I reach the moonlit road, I turn east toward Silvergate. Like the bison, I walk the middle. The road is not plowed after dark. Tonight's snow is unmarred by car tracks, but I follow a trail of wolf tracks, some as large as my hand with fingers spread, hoping for a sighting. But that's unlikely. Wolves want nothing to do with humans. If wolves are nearby, they will catch my scent or hear me and vanish like spirits in the night. Oh, I shake my head with longing. My goal while living here is to learn everything about this place, though I know that's not possible. This park, even this small valley, is too complex. Still, I yearn to understand how this ecosystem works, how the parts fit together. From the flies that buzz half awake in the daytime warmth of our cabin to the stoic bison trapped in a race between starvation 
and spring. From the snow that blows in from the Pacific to the sage that spices this high desert. From the wolf packs that hunt as well-oiled machines to bring down elk to the incredible variety of beetles that scour the bones after the other scavengers are long gone. What is the science behind this majesty? The setting moon kisses Specimen Ridge. A breeze rustles the cottonwoods. To the west, another wolf howls, a sustained bass. From the east comes a wavering alto reply. February's breeding season is just around the corner, and the 100 wolves that live in the park are staking claims on mates and territory. I feel such love for this place that tears well up. And that's not good in bitter cold. I wipe the corners of my eyes and release a long sigh. My breath mingles with the creek mist. I close my eyes. I've only been here three days, and I'm already afraid that three months isn't long enough. I open my eyes and start walking and smile at my puffy, down-clad shadow, stark against glistening snow, accompanying me down the road, past my tracks, intermingled with those of wolves. I'm chilled and longing for the warmth of Mary and the cabin. But I stop when the howling starts again. Soft at first, like the call of a single owl. Then other distinct voices join, different tones, different textures, a wild chorus of hunger and delight. That's really beautiful. Really beautiful. Really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> really beautiful. I'm... I just went with you over there. So, um, you know, this is a really good spot to leave our listeners out there in the snowy, cold night. And we'll step away because we've got a lot more to talk about um, in the next section. So, listeners, put your minds out there and uh, stick with us. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable 
Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World. And my guest, Rick Lamplew, author of three award-winning books that you can also find within the park. And um, his experience of um, living in the park and for three winters volunteering. And so, Rick, tell us what you you did. We touched on it a bit in the first section. You worked your way up into... um, a place where you could be an advocate for for wolves, um, learning the science and some of the history. So we left off at that first winter in that beautiful um, chapter of in the Temple of Wolves, and now we're kind of at your second winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the the beauty of uh, volunteering at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch was our job uh, for Mary, my wife, and I. We would the primary part of our job, the part we loved so much was driving a bus filled with um, 14 people. 13 of them were there to learn from the expert who was the 14th person on the bus. And it could have been a guide. It could have been a science professor. It could have been a writer. um, But these were all experts on some aspect of Yellowstone. So, you know, when we would drive the bus, they they would often say, well, take us here or take us there. Or they'd say, where are we going to see wild wolves today, Rick? And we would go there. But once we got there and we set up the scope, if we're looking for wolves, we set up the scope. And then, you know, you hear these experts talk about wolves or you hear them talk about Yellowstone or talk about the eagles that just flew over or the golden eagle that's on a kill out there or the bison that are walking by. So it was a total immersion into Yellowstone, which obviously is the subtitle of In the Temple of Wolves, because that's what this was. It was an immersion with all these wonderful experts talking and us being one of the people that was listening. I like that. I like that a lot. That goes back to what we're talking about today, that when we want to reconnect with nature, we... It's not just walking out there and standing next to a tree. We do have to immerse ourselves in it. It's kind of like a meditation. The first minute, your your brain is kind of doing everything until you get into that moment where you are tracking your breath and listening and scanning. So you get to that point where you're almost part of the people, the group, listening and actually immersing yourself 
in these moments, not just mm-hmm. passing through, but being there. And that's mm-hmm. not always easy. We go on trips and safaris and, and hikes and stuff like that, but it takes a certain willingness of turning off all the other noise in your brain to just listen and be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is, so, that is so true. And that was what was so beautiful about January and February and March at the ranch. It allowed us to turn off all that other noise. So that kind of led to a whole life change for you and your wife, Mary, that uh, you were in Corvallis, Oregon, and you were writing these books and this experience uh, affected you so deeply that you decided to do a whole new life change. Yeah, yeah, it came as a shock to a number of people, I can tell you that. Um, so we finished that second winter and we went back to Corvallis and then we came back to the ranch for a third winter. Um, we did the third winter and by that point in the Temple of Wolves, uh, was written and it become an Amazon bestseller and so I was you know promoting that online when I had the the chance um, but then the fourth winter we came back but we didn't go to the ranch we went to Gardner Montana right at the north gate of Yellowstone and we lived in a motel for the winter and you know the reason was that during the three winters uh, at the ranch, we had met some really wonderful people who work in Yellowstone. They were guides, they were drivers, they were yeah, photographers, um, NPS employees, National Park Service. And this winter, living the winter in a motel in Gardner gave us the chance to spend time with those folks, to go out skiing or, or you know, just have fun. And at the end of that winter... Um, Mary and I, as we so often do before we go home, would say, well, you know, how was this winter for you? And both of us realized that we weren't, we didn't want to go back to Corvallis. We wanted to stay in Gardner. And so we uh, went out and just said to ourselves, well, let's go look for some real estate. Um, You know, and within three weeks, we had bought a house in Gardner. And we went, then went back to Corvallis and sold our house there very quickly and you know by May we were moving into our, our home in Gardner, Montana. And so it was an incredible that leaving Oregon after thirty six years, uh, western Oregon which is rainy and uh, you know green as can be and moving to a cold and high desert, just physically that was an incredible change, but there were so many other changes as well. So you're now in Gardner, and you're assimilating into a completely different culture, um, <laughs> um, latitude, uh, weather pattern, and you know life pattern. You know from Montana, um, which is a whole different sort of place than Oregon, and you're getting closer to the wolves and um, being able to sitting in Gardner, Montana. That's kind of the hot spot, the hot seat of wildlife and wolf controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <clears throat> in fact, it was during their first year in Gardner that I started writing Deep into Yellowstone, and the subtitle of that book is A Year's Immersion in Grandeur and Controversy. Hmm. Um, and the reason I called it that, you know, Mary and I 
uh, moved to Gardner and, and live right at the north gate of Yellowstone. I mean, literally, we can see the arch from our dining room window. And what I didn't realize until moving here is that Gardner sits at the center of a number of controversies. You know, those include the delisting of the grizzly bear, hunting wolves when they step foot outside the park, or the question about whether wolves harm or help the local economy. Then there's the overuse of Yellowstone National Park. There's mining right on the gold, uh, mining for gold right on Yellowstone's border. And then there's the slaughter of bison uh, that occurs every winter. And let's let's get into that just a little bit more. I, you know, for our listeners that don't know Yellowstone, which is sort of the U.S.'s version of the Serengeti, mm-hmm. it's that grand of an ecosystem with so many differing aspects and so many different ecozones and all its wildlife and the different niches they all fill and the web that it creates that a lot of folks don't understand that although the wolves and the bison are protected within the park, there isn't a buffer zone right outside the park. We would like to think there is, but you had said it during one of our talks is as soon as a buffalo or a wolf puts a hoof or a paw outside that metaphysical boundary. It's not a hard line. It's not fenced. There isn't a gate. There's there's a few gates where tourists enter, but wildlife doesn't follow those rules. And as soon as they step outside the park, especially into Montana and Wyoming, it's, it's free game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, we mentioned the bison and talking about that, and that is a an incredible um, travesty, really. What what happens to uh, bison? You know, I said in the first session of, of this interview how you know the bison evolved over two million years. They started in southern Asia and migrated all the way north and crossed the Bering Land Bridge, and then came and turned south, and now they are literally trapped within Yellowstone National Park. Within the park, they can go anywhere they want, but that's only two million acres. And, it's, and, and, we, and this also goes back to, you know, the, the buffalo hunting and how we wipe them out. There used to be masses of them. Picture the wildebeest migration of uh, Africa. Millions of buffalo. And mm-hmm. now Yellowstone holds the last few remaining original strain of buffalo. Right. It's the longest standing herd of wild, genetically pure bison. I think there's a few of them um, outside the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Repository in Denver. And then there is another gentleman right now. His name uh, escapes me, but he was the one that... um, Took a cup. He he started the the Bronx Museum. It started to be uh, just a, 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 a tourist spot where he brought a couple of the buffalo, mm-hmm. and that ended up turning into uh, the Bronx Museum and that strain of buffalo. And now what we're getting into is rewilding the buffalo into tribal lands. But you're back here in the center of all this controversy between cattlemen and 
bison coming out. The argument is brucellosis uh, being transferred, which is a, a disease that beef gets, mad cow disease, I believe, and that they fear the bison will transfer that to their cattle, which has never happened. And then, of course, the controversy of wolves um, and the hunter uh, game management wildlife advocate side that wolves affect elk herds for hunters and that they have will kill people so let's get a little into these these myths about wolves okay well you know so where these became these myths became so obvious to me was um as i got deeper into advocating and for example i would mary and i both would go and do go to helena uh, our state capital each winter when the legislature is in session to give public comment on good or bad uh, legislation um, regarding issues that are important to us. That would be bison, grizzly bears, wolves, and solar energy. Uh, and in particular with wolves, when Mike Phillips, who you had on your program just recently, is a Montana senator. And he introduced a really common sense bill that would stop the hunting of wolves north of Yellowstone, uh, right at Gardner. Since Gardner's economy depends on wildlife tourism, it's important to keep wildlife alive. Um, so, you know, this bill was a thrill for myself and other wolf advocates in Montana. And Mary and I went there, and we were one of us, you know, you, you actually form a line to go up and stand at a podium and speak to the committee or the legislature, whoever you're talking to. And the line for people supporting this bill that would stop hunting was incredibly short. And the line of people who were, who were there to oppose this bill to stop hunting was incredibly long. Huh. And... And as I, so once we got done giving our support for the bill, then I sat down and I listened and I took notes on what all these opponents to this bill were saying. And basically, what I heard were the, the same three myths over and over and over again. The first one is, wolves are dangerous to humans. The second myth, wolves plunder our livestock. And the third myth, wolves decimate our elk herds. And so I, I came back to Gardner and, and did research on each of those myths and, and actually put together a presentation about, uh, about these myths um, called Wolves Beyond Myth and Fantasy. And, you know, they, they are just that. They're myths. There's no truth. There's no scientific basis for any of those three concerns. So it has a lot to do with vested interests of um, our wildlife managers uh, bowing, kowtowing, shall we say, to ranchers and livestock, you know, cattlemen and sheepmen and uh, who, who want to graze their livestock on these public lands. Correct. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, what it comes down to is, for example, for bison... Uh, the livestock industry in Montana does not want to share grass with bison, period. So there's rules and regulations that have been made that 
literally keep bison within the park, and if they step outside the park, they can be killed. <laughs> it, it, it boggles me how the, the, the wildlife management and the science can butt heads so um, definitively at this line, that inside the park, we need this true, pure, last line of genetically pure bison. And then they step outside the park, and bec- they eat a eat, eat the grass and of cattle, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a hard line, and they can be shot. So I don't under I'm I'm not sure how the the tracking goes of the science of this myself. Perhaps we can dig into this in another episode of how sure. um you know the bison herd is maintained in Yellowstone when there's hunting outside. I mean, how do we justify and uh, bring together these two diametrically opposed uh, points? So um, here also in Gardner is where you wrote Deep into Yellowstone, your second Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, um, as soon as we moved to Gardner, Mary and I got active with a, there's a, a local all-volunteer organization, conservation organization called the Bear Creek Council in Gardner. Been around for more than 30 years. And we got involved with them immediately. Um, we also got involved with protesting against the delisting of the grizzly at that time. And I've written extensively about the slaughter of bison Um Working with Bear Creek Council and with another conservation organization here in Montana called Wolves of the Rockies, um, we help to reduce the number of wolves that can be killed once they step outside the park. So while doing all this activism, uh, I wrote articles for a website called YellowstoneReports.com. And my arrangement with the publisher of that website was that they would have exclusives on these pieces that I wrote for 90 days. But then the articles would eventually become the basis for a book. So I wrote these articles that were 1,000, 1,500 words each and then put them all together in a book. And sometimes for the book, sometimes I lengthened the pieces or put in more information that wasn't on the website pieces or I added more science or I even added new chapters. Then I put them in chronological order to tell a story of grandeur and controversy from January through December. Wow. I can't wait to dig into that one. Mm-hmm. So um, I think this is a point where I think you wanted to tell another little bit of a story. 755's story. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, I would love to read this for you. This was a piece that <clears throat> went on my uh, blog. Um. And it's about, our, it's about our second winter. Okay. In December of 2012, Mary and I were home packing for our second winter when we learned of the shooting of the famous wolf known as 06. She and her Lamar Canyon pack had drawn us into the world of wolves during our first winter. We were shocked and saddened by the loss of this powerful alpha to a trophy hunter. Next came anger at such senseless killing. Finally came the sickening realization that one bullet may kill the entire Lamar Canyon pack. The shooting of 06 left her pack and alpha male 755 outside the park 
with breeding season just around the corner. Though his drive to reproduce was strong, he had a pack full of females that he would not mate with since they were his daughters. He left his family outside the park, returned to the Lamar Valley, and chose a female from a different pack. A few days later, his daughters returned to the Lamar Valley and attacked their father's new mate. She limped off to die in the woods. Early the next morning, we watched and listened from the back porch of the bunkhouse as 755 stood on the far side of the road and how seemed to plead, really, with his family to come down off the flank of nearby Ranger Hill and join him. When they didn't, he crossed the road and started up Ranger Hill. Two big males from a pack outside the park who were interested in the Lamar females charged down the hill flying towards 755. They stopped before reaching him. None of the three moved. Then the two big males howled. 755 howled right back. The standoff ended when 755 retreated to just across the road. The two males, tails high, returned to what was once 755's pack. From the opposite side of the road, 755 howled again. One of his pups trotted halfway down the hill and howled. 755 replied with an almost beseeching howl. The pup looked at his father, looked at his pack, looked at his father, looked at his pack. The pup howled again. The pack answered. The pup looked at 755 and headed for the safety of his changing pack. 755 howled one last time. Then he turned and started walking west out of the Lamar Valley. I'll never forget the sadness I felt that day as the pack shattered, or the awful silence of the valley as the remaining Lamars rarely made their presence known. I have come to understand how that single trophy hunter bullet did more than kill the alpha female and uproot 755. That bullet threw the delicate social order of the pack into life-threatening disarray. That bullet forced many wolves to choose new leaders, new roles, new lives. That bullet changed me. My fantasy of spending winters in wolf-filled bliss in the Lamar Valley shattered, along with my fantasy that wolves in packs were invisible. In place of those fantasies grew a desire to help protect wolves. For the first time, I considered advocating. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. So from that point on, you not only uprooted your lives out of Corvallis, Oregon, and into Gardner, Montana, and the hot seat of controversy, but you took a stance, and you ended up going to Washington, D.C. as well, Yeah. Yeah, the Endangered Species Coalition, an organization that I really admire, um, asked me and a number of other advocates to go to D.C. to speak 
with members of our state uh, states um, House of Representative members and Senate members about the importance of the Endangered Species Act. That was really quite an experience. I'll bet it was, especially now as we see it being unraveled. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, various states out west changing their the wildlife management, changing their policies on how many wolves can be killed. It's it's a real hotbed out there, folks, especially mm-hmm. with wolves sitting at the middle of it. The bison as well, but the wolves are truly uh, endangered in more ways than one right now as they step out of the parks and try to disperse similar to mountain lions, but they're pack animals, and try to create new packs throughout our Rocky Mountain West. And this is also what Mike Phillips talks about as he's going to be introducing a bill in Colorado uh, for legislation where we vote on whether we want wolves in Colorado. One has made its way down, one from, uh, I forget which pack, but out of Yellowstone, it's come down and found northern Colorado and it's created as much of a stir in northern Colorado as it's creating in Oregon, Montana, and Wyoming. And you're absolutely correct. The lines of people who don't want wolves uh, and want to make them their voices heard are outweigh those of the advocates. So we really need uh, advocacy for these wolves at these levels. So I strongly suggest reading Rick's uh, three books. We didn't really get into the wilds of aging. That's uh, a bit of a separate uh, a separate focus. So um, beautiful book, but we really need advocacy here. So um, how did you take everything that you learned in how those who oppose wolves do so based on those three myths, fact-checking to break down those myths, and present this in a legislative way and help our listeners understand how we, as wolf advocates, can pick up this torch and put it into action. Yeah, so... I mentioned this presentation that I do, and this is a part of that presentation um, about how do you become an effective advocate. Just some points here, and I'll just read a short list to you. You know, it's changing one mind at a time. It's educating yourself and your family and your friends. It's listening with empathy for myths behind the hate and fear. It's using facts, not opinions, to debunk myths. And I really encourage people to personally call or write legislators and officials rather than just signing petitions. Um, I also encourage people to attend hearings and give public comment. There is nothing more significant to a representative than seeing a person right there. It does make a difference, being face-to-face. Bodies, bodies count. And the key is to treat others with respect. Um, And then, you know, on a personal level, there's a couple things you can do, which is eat wildlife-friendly meat, also called predator-friendly. And you can donate to your favorite conservation organizations. You know, if, if you do those things, you'll be an effective advocate. 
I think we need to back up one little step and talk about respect. Um, mm-hmm. The vitriol that goes on through social media, what doesn't help, you know, these knee-jerk responses of kill the hunters um, and, and, and just the rudeness that goes on is not helpful. It ends up, you know, spreading more hate and gets everybody's back up and makes the divide between us even deeper. We need to look more at the common ground, the hunters and the advocates. We all want wildlife. So we have to start at that point and have an argument or a debate that is civil. Uh, We need to have respect for the lifestyles of the people on the opposite side of the table, those whose lives depend on the land as ranchers or sheep herders or uh, livestock grazers of any sort, but at the same time find ways to um, provide space to live with the wildlife. Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, I have a Facebook page, and people can find me on Facebook. Just type in Rick Lamplew, L-A-M-P-L-U-G-H. One of the things I'm most proud of that um, page is the dialogue that the posts that I make get. There's so many intelligent, concerned advocates who are expressing opinions, not just saying, leave wolves alone, or I hate wolves, or I love wolves. You know, they're, they're explaining why they want things, they're, and it's very respectful. It just, it really touches me. And that's partly how I found you, and uh, was your Facebook page. I was, as I had said in the beginning, looking for folks to delve deeper into wolves, and this program oftentimes gets into the science and the biology and, you know, the the importance of niches and the environment and the trophic cascades when you remove something. But today what I hope is everybody has learned that your passion uh, for wildlife, for wolves, does have an avenue to speak for wolves. You can take that and with respect, speak, speak out for wolves. So I strongly suggest you visit Rick's uh, Facebook page, read his blogs, read his posts. As he said, the dialogue is incredible. And join in and take it a step further. So, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Ellie. I really enjoyed talking with you. This was a fabulous episode. So, folks, I hope you took some time to hear those howls on a cold, snowy night. And now step out into your wild world and take what you see and turn it into some action. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 